Last week we started the Sermon on the Mount. There are five discourses or five teachings in the Gospel of Matthew. And the Sermon on the Mount is the first teaching section by Jesus. And this is probably the most famous and perhaps the most significant with regards to being a disciple of Jesus. And so it behooves us to take, pay very close attention to what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus, a believer, a worshiper of Jesus. Now the context is the kingdom of God. Jesus began preaching the kingdom of God. That led, that led us right into the Sermon on the Mount. And I want you to notice that the Beatitudes are bracketed by the kingdom. The first beatitude is blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The last beatitude, the one that splits into two, is blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom. So the kingdom brackets the beatitudes as well. And it's teaching us who is really well off in the end? The answer is those who belong to the kingdom. And those who belong to the kingdom look a certain way. And that's what the Beatitudes tell us. Last week, we uh, went through the first four Beatitudes. And that essentially tells us what is needed to enter the kingdom of God. What do you need? Do you need great might and strength? Do you need bravery more than anyone else? Do you need to be the most unique and, and special individual, intellectual and virtuous? No. What you need to enter the kingdom of God, to enter the kingdom, is you need to be dependent upon God. You need to need God. That's all you need. To enter the kingdom of God. You just need to need the Lord. The poor in spirit are not those who have self-confidence. But they lack confidence in themselves and therefore look to God. Those who mourn feel the weight of sin in the world. And the weight of their own sin. And so they look to God. The meek are not strong enough to... to dominate and take over kingdoms. They can't, they can't take over the earth, yet they will inherit the earth because they call upon the name of God and they are saved. And those who hunger and thirst for righteousness want what God has. They want what God gives. They want the kingdom to come. So in all those four beatitudes, there's this, this underlying notion of need, of lack and need, which in turn causes the person to look to God and find help. So, the, the key that opens the door to the kingdom of God is need and dependence upon the Lord. shows you that the kingdom is not something, it's, it's not something attained, it's something received. That's very important. 
The kingdom is not attained, it's received by those who reach out to God with the empty hands of dependence. Now, so that's the first four. The, the next four plus one beatitude um, has to do with the character of the kingdom of heaven. Um, what would you expect a Christian to be like? What do we expect, Christ, what are we expected to be like? Um, if you find a disciple in the world, what does, what does Christ say this disciple will look like? If you see somebody who will receive mercy, who will inherit the kingdom, who will see the face of God, who will inherit the earth, what do these people look like? What are their inner lives like? What do they act like? What, what is their disposition? What is their character like? That's what we see in the next four to five Beatitudes. What are these people like? So if you would read with me, Matthew chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Amen. So the first four Beatitudes marked entrance into the kingdom of God. The next four marks the character of a kingdom citizen. Um, let me back out here for a second and just frame this within the biblical meta-narrative. Um, man was created how? In the image of God, right? He was created in the image of God, and that means with the purpose to reflect God out into the world. We have the capacity and the responsibility to reflect God out into the world. That's what it means to be an image. In the ancient Near East, kings, when they used to dominate lands, used to set up statue, statues in the lands of themselves that they controlled. So they would dominate a nation, they would set up statues of themselves in order to say, this land belongs to me. I control this area. When God did the same kind of thing, he didn't erect statues, he created images of himself. So as to reflect him out into the world in order to say to the world, God reigns here. And that's what a church is. And that's what a Christian is for. Um, so we were, we were supposed to reflect God 
But as you know, man fell. And instead of being an image, he became an idol of himself. He followed his own way. He sinned. He fell short of the glory of God. And the wages he will receive for that is death and destruction because God is not going to allow idols to exist in his good creation forever. That was the whole point of kicking Adam and Eve out of the garden because he, did, he would not allow these, these corrupt idols to perpetuate into existence forever. So the whole story of the cross and redemption is that though we are released from the guilt that sin brought upon us, we're released from the bondage and power of sin that came from the fall. And now we can be restored to the image of God. And since Christ, who is the perfect image of God, came down and lived the perfect life as the perfect image of God, died in our place in order to redeem us, to purchase us out of guilt and bondage, and rose again as our King and our Lord, and now unites us to himself, he does that, why? In order to conform us to his image. The whole point is a restoration program. It's a restoration program so that God's images can do what they were supposed to do from the beginning. That's the biblical meta-narrative. Um, so the question then, with that frame in mind, is what is a restored image bearer of God look like? What are we reflecting? Let's see. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they shall receive mercy. All right, the word mercy means leniency, or leniency in judgment and compassion towards those in misery. So it's close to the word pity or compassion or sympathy that drives you to action. Leniency and judgment and compassion towards those in misery. I like to con contrast grace and mercy because I think that kind of helps us get the, the idea. Grace is being given something you don't deserve. Being given what you don't deserve. Do we deserve the Holy Spirit? No. God gave it to us. Mercy is being spared of what you do deserve. So what did we deserve? We deserved hell, but we were spared of that through faith in Jesus Christ. So if grace is being given what we don't deserve, and mercy is being spared of what we do deserve. So a merciful person, then, is someone who has the disposition to spare somebody, somebody from plight or the consequences of their actions. Mercy spares people from what they deserve. And so a merciful person is somebody who is prone, who, whose tendency, his mode of operation is to be sparing, to spare people from what they deserve. Now, why is that difficult? 
I think it's difficult because people deserve to suffer for their conse the consequences of their foolishness. People are foolish and get themselves into great trouble for their own foolishness. They're slothful, indifferent. They lack wisdom and because of their own idiocy, <laughs> they've made life difficult for them and other people. And they should suffer the consequences for what they deserve. I mean, it's almost like people have made their beds. So they should lie in it, right? That's only equitable, one would feel. I mean, that's right down the line. That's what should happen in a just society. But, and that's kind of... Very often, that's my default mode of thinking. And then I think, but how have I been spared by God of the foolishness and idiocy of my own actions? What if I, what if God allowed me to suffer all the consequences of the sins of my youth? <laughs> I can guarantee you I wouldn't be, I wouldn't even be up here. I wouldn't be here. And neither would you, obviously. And so that's just generally speaking. We've all been foolish, and we, we all deserved more. We all deserved to suffer consequences for our foolishness. But God spared us. God has been so sparing to me, brothers and sisters. He has been so sparing to me. I, I've made so many missteps in life and I could have oh, I could have um, ended up in a completely different place but in the mercy of God he has saved me from sloth and indifference to him and foolishness of my youth very sparing very sparing very merciful Not only is it um, just generally we've been spared, but, but we've been... Uh, well, let me think about it this way. People deserve to suffer the consequences of their own action. We kind of see that out. We have that disposition for those out in the world, but also people who sin against us. We've been disrespected, right? People have been mean-spirited to us, right? So they don't deserve your kindness towards them, do they? If somebody, if somebody is cruel and mean-spirited and disrespectful towards you, they do not deserve your kindness. But then I think about myself, and I think about how I've insulted God, how I've sat on his lap and slapped him in the, slapped him in the face and defied him so many times in life. And the Lord has shown me mercy. He has spared me of the consequences of my sin, not just my foolishness, but my sin against him, my vertical missteps against him. 
So, I've been spared of the consequences of foolishness, idiocy, sloth, indifference, lack of common sense, lack of wisdom. I've made my, I could have made my life a, a, an absolute train wreck. Um, God spared me in his grace and mercy from those things. And he spared me from the eternal consequences of my sin. You follow me? So, mercy is difficult. And it's difficult because you very often will be the object of disrespect, of mean-spiritedness, yes, of cruelty in life. But mercy requires you to, to give to others precisely what has been given to you in Christ, right? So rather than be a... Everyone go to a shooting range before shooting range. I know we got a lot of gunslingers out here, so don't, don't <laughs> keep your hands down. <laughs> I know. Um, there you go. So in a shooting range, I'll, I'll have you know that the background that you shoot against is not a, is not a steel wall. Now, why is that? Why isn't this steel wall? Because if you shoot, it, it, the bullet will deflect off of it and could come back and hit you. Right? Usually it's some kind of background that absorbs the bullet. Absorbs the bullet. That's what we need to be when it comes to an insult or mean-spiritedness. You need to be somebody who absorbs rather than deflects and gives and gives somebody precisely what they gave to you. So, I, I mean, gosh, who does that sound like? Who was it? Again, remind me who is on the cross and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, even though he could have called down 12 legions of angels. So, we have been shown mercy. Yes, it is difficult, but a disciple of Christ is somebody who is merciful. Why? Because they have received this mercy from God. Turn with me to Matthew 18 now. All right, here's the question. Matthew 18, verse 23. Now, it says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. All right? It sounds, it sounds like a condition is being placed upon mercy being given to me. All right? It sounds like in order to receive mercy, I must be merciful. But I thought we were saved by grace. Now, th this is a massive topic, and we'll, we will, we're going to, in systematic theology, in the next couple of months, when we get through spiritual disciplines and then the, the gospel, we're going to talk about some of these things in further depth. But I just want to give you a, um, just as a pastor, give you a way to understand these things. So, let's go to Matthew 18, 23 through 33. 
Jesus is talking about an unforgiving servant as a parable here of somebody who was given mercy and did not give the same mercy to someone else that he received himself. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him and owed him 10,000 talents. Now, 10,000 talents, from what I understand, um, is about 150,000 years of wages. That's a lot of money, right? So he, he owed 150,000 years of wages. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had, and that payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. That's a lot to forgive. But when that same servant went out, and he found that one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and he seized him, and he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. A hundred um, denarii was about um, 100 days of wages. So this man that was forgiven owed 150,000 years worth of wages, this other man owed 100 days of wages. So he grabs him and said, pay what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with them, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused and went and put him in the prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what they had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And when his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had on you? Should you not have had mercy? Why, why is it that the master said you should have mercy? Because he had been given mercy. Note that. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Wow. That is, that is a hard thing. And we certainly don't want to warm over what Jesus said here. So let's take this. He, he told this for a reason. 
And this is, this is a weighty and serious matter. And I wrestle and struggle with these things a lot in my life. You know what the word appreciate means? Um, it means to value something. But also, appreciate has another meaning. It means the increase in value of an asset over time. So land can appreciate in value. A home can appreciate in value, right? It seems to me that the mercy given to this unforgiving man did not appreciate within him. It did not grow within him. It did not appreciate in his heart in value. It did not grow and take over him. Almost like the parable of the sower. The seed was sown. It grows for a, grew for a time. And then in a time of trouble, one fell away. Compare this with Paul. So it seems that the mercy did not appreciate in this unforgiving servant. What about Paul? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.10... But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. It wasn't in vain. It appreciated. It grew. It increased in value and strength over time. It grew in him. God deposited mercy and grace in the Apostle Paul. And that was growing in him. And as he says... By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. So this grace took over the Apostle Paul. It appreciated in his spirit. And this was not because he just stood there statically, but he worked harder than all of them. So there's this... There's this um, complementary truth that God gives you a thing to a mercy and grace to appreciate in your heart and it is our duty to come alongside that and work hard by the grace of God by his grace so that it appreciates in our heart so if somebody if if I deposit money in the bank I expect it to grow Right? If God deposits mercy and grace into you, He expects it. No, actually, He commands it to grow. And I think that's the point of the parable. And that's the essence of the warning. If God deposits mercy in you, He expects that mercy to appreciate over time. I mean, if the mercy of God is flowing, really flowing into you, it's going to be flowing out of you, right? The best way to tell if mercy is flowing into you is how? Is it flowing out? Is it flowing out? Jesus said, you will know them how? Because they said they received mercy? Because they said they are, they are fruitful? Or will you actually know them how? By their fruits. So, you will know them by their fruits. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. If, if the mercy of God has been given to you and is flowing into you, 
It must and it will flow out of you. It must and it will. It must. It must. And it will. So, Christians are those through whom God's deposit of mercy appreciates and grows. The seed grows into a tree. The seed of grace and mercy grows into the tree. The, God's character, if we are united with Christ, is his very life flowing through us and in us. And it will increase in value over time. I just want to double down on this. All right? Because we are saved by grace through faith. But that grace is powerful, so powerful. I know many of you have witnessed this grace in your life. I certainly have. And so this grace and mercy conforms you to be an image bearer of God. Here is what, in the vein of what Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. And the parable of the unforgiving servant who didn't show mercy. If you do not forgive your brother from the heart, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. This is not just some like isolated phrase. This is all over Scripture. James, I think this is James 2 somewhere. He says, judgment is without mercy to those who show no mercy. Jesus, in just the next chapter we'll get to in a few weeks, Jesus says, if you do not forgive others your sin, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. Jesus said, don't judge hypocritically, because the judgment with which you judge, it will be judged to you. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That standard that you set up for others is the same standard that you'll be judged by. So here's the thing. Do you want to set up this standard of God's mercy in your life? That's the standard by which you will be judged. There's so much more that needs to be say, said on this. But the key is union with Christ. The key is the fact that God's life dwells within you and his fruits are being produced in you. So you must bear fruit and you will bear fruit. Now, if there's anyone here right now who is uncomfortable, not necessarily with the theology, because I suspect this is uncomfortable theologically, and, and we're trying to find ways around it, and, and I, don't do that. Don't cheapen Christ's words, all right? Don't, you must compare Scripture with Scripture, but let this punch land on you for a minute. Don't over-theologize. The, Jesus told this for a reason, right? He wanted us to stand up straight and think, wow, this, Jesus is serious about this. I mean, these are heavy warnings. 
All right? Okay. So if somebody is, is, feels that God's character is not flowing through them and, fe- and, and bo- is not entirely sure where they stand with the Lord, you need to repent and believe. You need to cast your cares upon God because he cares for you. And then you need to put some strength into your Christian walk then. And examine, Paul said, or James says, or Peter says, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Do you really believe in Jesus Christ? Are you really walking with him? Are you really living for it? Are you really a committed disciple? Or is it just by name alone? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are those who have received the grace and mercy of God and it appreciates within them, and it flows out of them. Blessed is that kind of disciple, because it's that kind of disciple that will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Purity at this point in in the Jewish religion was outward. Purity culture. It was all outward, right? Um, They had strict purity laws about touching a corpse or how to deal with a leper or how to wash your hands up to your elbows and and how to do this and how to tithe mint, dill, and cumin and how how to, what the unclean versus the clean animal. Everything was outward. And so the Jewish leaders of the day treated purity in terms of rituals. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. So he's redirecting the location of purity. Not just the ritual, but the heart posture. The heart, cardia, is the source of intellectual and spiritual life in the Greek. The heart was the center of the human will and the center of one's powers of decision. So when he says, blessed are the pure in heart, he just means the very essence, the very center of you. He said to the Pharisees, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, later on in Matthew. Hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside, You are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Jesus was very pointed at religious people. And I think if he came into a church today, the same kind of thing would be going on. So the root of piety, the root of piety is the posture of our heart before God. That's the root of it. That's what piety before God is. And purity is not happy. One who is pure in heart 
they're not happy to create the impression of godliness. They're not happy to indulge in impression management when we're around people and we sort of manage the way we come off to people so as to manage how they are impressed by us, what, what, what impression we give them. That's impression management. Here's a great question that Jonathan Wesley, founder of the Methodist movements, which is now pagan, um, but was not previously, said when he would go to his small groups, he would ask them 22 questions. I can send this to you. 22 self-examination questions. I think Gary's got it in his Bible. He can show it to you after service. The first question is my favorite. It's, am I consciously or unconsciously creating the impression that I am better than I really am? In other words, am I a hypocrite? That's a great question to ask. Because if we are, oh my, brothers, sisters, don't think, that, don't think I'm up here preaching this as somebody who is free from being guilty of this at many times. But when we are, we're right back to the Pharisees where they were. We're right back to where they were, right? When we are creating the impression that I am better than I really am. That means we're projecting external purity while masking internal corruption, which is exactly the problem. That's the Pharisees' problem. The projection of purity. When in our hearts, we are very impure. In fact, we're harboring impurity. That's the danger. I suggest to you, by way of application, the discipline of self-examination and self-suspicion. The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? James, Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us. So self-suspicion. Self Don't trust yourself very often. Don't trust your motivations very often. Here's J.I. Packer. <clears throat> Let me read you this few sentences in his, from his book, A Quest for Godliness, which is so good, about the Puritans. He says, The Puritans knew that Scripture is the unalterable rule of holiness and never allowed themselves to forget it. Knowing also the dishonesty and deceitfulness of fallen human hearts, they cultivated humility and self-suspicion as abiding attitudes and examining themselves and examined themselves regularly for spiritual blind spots and lurking inward evils. They may not be they may not be called morbid or introspective on this account. However, on the contrary, they found the discipline of self-examination by scripture. followed by the discipline of confessing and forsaking sin and renewing one's gratitude to Christ for his pardoning mercy to be the source of great inner peace and joy. Mm. So, self-examination. They found this in Scripture. Examine yourself to, be, to see whether you are in the faith. They followed this discipline. They confessed their sins to one another. 
And they had this renewed gratitude towards Jesus Christ and his forgiveness. That's, that is what, brothers and sisters, we should do. Be self-suspicious. Examine yourselves. It was great that in men's group, a great thing for the men to get around and we confessed our sins last Saturday to one another. And now we know better how to pray for one another. That was, a, that was a good and healthy and holy thing to do. So, practice self-suspicion, self-examination. Now, some of you, some of you, though, are prone to an analysis paralysis. Some of you may verge on morbid introspection, though. And, and the words I just said to you about self-examination and suspicion is not anything new to you at all. So by way of encouragement, I want you to know that it is normal for the human heart to experience a mixture of feelings and motivations. And you're not sure the heart is very duplicitous. So it's very common for you to feel a mixed, mixed motivations and to be unsure of what motivation is driving the other. That's common. Um, so what you need to do is acknowledge that and don't be your own physician. But ask the Lord to come in. And say, Lord, search me and know me. Try me and know my thoughts. And if there is any grievous way in me, lead me in the way of everlasting. This is when you have to cast yourself on God's mercy. For those of you who are very familiar with your soul and its movements and its deceptions, very familiar with that, don't be your own physician. You can only examine yourself up to a point, all right? But call upon the great physician, and then, then I would encourage you, having done that, to not be paralyzed into inaction, but to serve God. Let your feelings be as they may, having called upon him, and trust it to him, okay? So self-examination but not paralyzed by self-analysis. Blessed are the pure in heart. Not just the one who does the religious ritual, the one whose heart is pure to, towards God, and the one who seeks to purify himself before God through prayer and single-minded devotedness to him. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. A peacemaker, it's interesting, in, in the Greek, I'm seeing the word peace and do together. It's peace, peace plus doer. It's a peace doer. It's, it's two words together. It's peace and do or make. So it's not just somebody who wants peace, it's somebody who makes peace. Blessed are those, blessed are the peacemakers. 
not just the peace wanters. See, it is one thing to want peace but create chaos, right? And it's a entirely other thing to long for peace but to do nothing. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Those who put into practice what they long for. Blessed are the peacemakers. Now, why will they be called sons of God? Why? Why, will they, why would a peacemaker be called a son of God or a child of God? Why is this? Because God himself is the one who made peace between himself and humanity. He initiated it. Christ came down. We did not rise up to him to make peace. Christ came down to make peace. Ephesians 2, he himself is our peace who has broken down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile and himself and man and has created himself one man in place of the two, so making peace. My peace I bring to you. Peace on earth. And goodwill to those with whom he is pleased. Peace. So be a peacemaker. Husbands, guess what? You're the leader of your household. And it is not for... I, I am convinced that husbands should initiate in bringing peace. When there's an argument, husbands, you be the initiator, not your wife. Why is that? Because you're the leader. So yes, husbands or wives submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. But what is the much more difficult command for the husband? Love your wife as Christ loved the church. How did he do that? He initiated peace at cost to himself. That's hard to do. It's hard to do. In the church, make peace with one another. Here is our covenant. Our covenant says we, we covenant to be slow to take offense and ready for reconciliation. Always seeking peace. The unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Out of love for one another, not just not just peace, but to, because that's what God has done for us and because we love the brotherhood. Now, let me back up here because you know Episcopalians are liberal and probably, I mean, many, many Episcopalians are liberal, liberal non-Christians and they take Christ and, and the gospel and they just liberalize it. They they deconstruct it so that Christ is, is really a good example of a liberal man. And yes, you know, and I, maybe some things I said would not rest comfortably with them today. But some things I said would. I mean, a good liberal could sit right in the back there, right behind Sarah, and be happy. Yes, we should be peaceful people. Marvelous. 
we should be merciful to one another. This is a what a what a you know what a, an enlightened individual up there preaching about peace and mercy. This is this is a great thing. And and yes, the poor. We should care for the poor. And um, oh, those who mourn. These, these you know there are people that we we need to to be a helping hand. And I'm glad that's why there's Habitat for Humanity and the Peace Corps. And all these sorts of things. So Christ to these people is Christ the good liberal who just preached peace and mercy, you know, hovered two inches off the air in a woman's nightgown with a peace sign held up, trembling as he approached the masses. Well, I don't think so. Because, interestingly enough, out of this, out of, after all this mercy and purity and peace and meekness, oh, it sounds so good and, and, and liberal, which it is not. But verse 10 almost comes like a, a shot from the dark. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you the Christ, why would they be persecuted? Why? Does Jesus say mercy, purity, peace, persecution? Why is that? Because when we are talking about mercy, peace, purity, we're not talking about ethics. We're talking about devotion to God. We're talking about... I like that ring. We're talking about... Is my time up? Is that what it is, Gary? <laughs> but why is that, though? Um, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> um, why? Because the Christian... Oh, devo devotion to God. We're not just ethical liberals. We're devoted to God. The reason we give mercy is because mercy has been given to us. The reason we sow peace is because the peace of God has been given to us. We withhold vengeance because vengeance belongs to the Lord. So, the reason we'll be persecuted, brothers and sisters, is not only because we are devoted to God, but secondly, because the Christian message is offensive. Paul says, to one kind of person, we're an aroma of life. We're the aroma, it smells good. To the other kind, we're aroma of death. We smell like death to some people. Jesus, to say that Jesus is the exclusive way to salvation, 
and that everything else is a lie from Satan. To contend for doctrines seems narrow-minded and, and stuffy and old-fashioned. To engage in church discipline, <laughs> a refusal to celebrate LGBTQ weddings by our attendance. We must obey God rather than man. So if you're here and you are, if you're just getting into this Christian stuff, and the mercy, the peace sounds good. Know that you will be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Interesting, it says, they will utter all kinds of evil against you. It's not, it's not just to say they'll, they'll shove you off. At some point, they will call you evil and wicked, even. I had one preacher say, I think this, maybe this is Washer. He warned, your suffering won't be noble, either. It won't be a noble suffering. Like, oh, look at this righteous man standing up for what he believes in. No, no. Your suffering will be ignoble. You will be called a fundamentalist. You will be called a child abuser for raising your children in the way of Christ. You will be called a hateful bigot. And you will be actually called unchristlike in your attitudes. You will be called unchristian in your beliefs. But if Jesus said, if they call the master of the house Beelzebub, Satan, how much more will they malign you? So. There is a blessing for those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So I want to encourage you to stand firm and persevere because drawing the disgust of the enemies of God does not mean that you're doing something wrong. In your Christian walk. You hear me? Drawing the disgust of people who reject Christ and his message doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're failing to be salt and light, as is so often propounded today. That doesn't mean that. John Stott said, see, since all the Beatitudes describe what every Christian disciple is intended to be, we conclude that the condition of being despised and rejected, slandered and persecuted, is as much normal a mark of the Christian discipleship as being pure in heart or merciful. It's just as normal to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Right? So understand that you, you bear an offensive message as well. And Jesus says that they will call you evil and it will be on my account. 
not just for some general ethic, not just God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. That's not going to get anyone stoned, right? It's insisting that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. It's insisting that there is a holy and just God who, is, who demands payment for sin. And that we have all sinned and fallen short of his glory. But God has shown his love for us in Christ. And that's the only way. That's the only way. And that we must appropriate that message through faith, repentance and faith in him. And even if somebody says they're a Christian, you will know them by their fruits. And we'll, that's offensive. So, one caveat to this. There is a difference between being persecuted for Christ and being a jerk. All right? Know that. There is a difference between mean-spiritedness and um, using our insistence on Christ's righteousness and insisting upon that aggressively and angrily at other people, knocking them down and casting dispersions upon them and being an accuser in order to mask my own inner anger and my own vitriolic spirit, which is an impure heart. That, that's very, understand that. Maybe we've all been guilty of that before. Maybe we're frustrated at the things that are happening in the world. And a root of bitterness springs up in my heart. And I use Christ and his righteousness, the message, in order to really express my inner hatred for other people. Maybe that, maybe, maybe we do that sometimes. Maybe not all the time, maybe sometimes. Beware of that. But... But you will be persecuted for righteousness' sake. So don't think something is wrong. Brothers, we have, we have promised to be better evangelists in this church. And we said, by the next time we meet, we're going to have at least one person that we've had a conversation with or we're working on. So what's that going to be like? It... You may, it may not be a nice conversation, and you will still have done your job. If you can deliver the message, God, man, Christ response, God, man, Christ response, like we talked about, that's a great outline for the gospel. Just explain to them the gospel. Do it in love. Explain to them sin. Explain to the holiness of God. Explain to them the love of God in Christ. Explain to them repent and believe. Explain to them reorienting your entire life around Jesus Christ. And that will make people look at you like you're narrow-minded, you're a little naive. It may go that way. Don't be surprised. 
That doesn't mean you failed necessarily. So in these, these Beatitudes, I think we see the character of God. We see his love, which has given us his mercy and his peace. And we also see his righteousness and justice. And that's what requires payment for sin. And that's why Jesus died on the cross, so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in him. So we, the, what this is calling you to be is to be a son of God. It's to reflect who God is. Luke 6.36, Jesus says, with regards to mercy, be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. It was, it's always about reflecting God. Always about being an extension of who he is into the world as an image bearer, always pointing to him, not ourselves. Let's close in a word of prayer.